Chapter 2 The Call In which we enter the ancient world of Abraham, learn about his world, and discover with him something quite surprising about God. Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Key lesson. Abraham shows us in this moment that loving God means being loyal and committed to him. Even if that means making an altar to God in the land of Baal, even if it costs you. Abe's world, Abe's world, party time, excellent. A few summers ago, my family and I went on an adventure to go see France. My wife was an exchange student in France in high school and then spent her junior year of college studying abroad there, so that nation is embedded deeply in her DNA. Interestingly, somehow, this passion leaked onto my son, who signed up to take French for his foreign language requirement at school. That's not too weird. And also, he turned into a full-blown Francophile studying French history and culture on his own, which is a little weird. I had never been to France, but I like food, and I like art, and France is arguably the best in the world at both, and I wanted to go see the places that my wife had spoken of so glowingly for so many years. By the way, France did not disappoint. It is incredible. Now, before you go to a foreign country, If you're a smart traveler, you do some research. You know you're going into another culture with different customs and different ways of doing things. So before we went, we had to get all new SIM cards for our cell phones to work there and new power adapters to plug into the outlets. My son picked up a book of common French phrases to brush up on his language. We read tour books, planned out our routes around Paris in the south of France, and we studied the train schedules so that we could get around. The point is, before we went to this distant place that we knew would be so different than where we lived, we did some research to understand where we were going so that we wouldn't be confused or be a befuddled mess wandering accidentally into traffic or worse, unable to buy croissants. So before you go to a place that's foreign to you, it's always good to do a little research. So with that in mind, before we jump into the story of Abraham, we need to do a little research. We're not only traveling to a distant land, but we also need to get into our 1985 DeLorean with Michael J. Fox and go back in time, way back in time, to Abraham's day and age. In fact, it's so far back in time, it's almost difficult to imagine. An example, my wife had a relative named Grandma Tubbs who lived to be 100 years old. After she died, I made a list of all the things that happened or were invented or discovered in her exceptional lifetime. For example, before Grandma Tubbs was born, there was no human flight in a plane, no rockets or space travel, plastics had not been invented, only 50% of homes in the U.S. had electricity, antibiotics had not yet been discovered, there were no refrigerators, and no Netflix. If we go back 200 years ago, 
There would have been no cars, no light bulbs, no bicycles, no plywood, no canned food, no thermometers, no combustion engine, no matches. And I don't mean matches on eHarmony. I mean like actual matches you use to start fires. Did people just carry around torches? It's insane. And that's going back just two centuries. The story of Abraham is set more than 2,000 years before Jesus was born, which is roughly 4,000 years ago, 40 centuries ago. In some ways, it's difficult to enter into the world of someone so long ago whose world was so completely and utterly different, but we have to at least try. One of the reasons why I want to do this is because the story of Abraham is so distant, and if we're not careful, we'll start to treat it like mythology, like a fairy tale, like a long time ago in a land far, far away. But the Bible is real. It's rooted in human history, a real God interacting with real people in real places. And we don't want to lose that, even if it does sometimes seem as though we're describing Middle Earth. The second reason I want to do this is because if we're not careful, we'll treat these ancient people and societies as though they were primitive cavemen, which they were most definitely not. As you'll see, their language, culture, and customs were different than ours, but not inferior. We must lay aside what C.S. Lewis termed chronological snobbery. Just because we have the internet doesn't mean we're suddenly a superior race of people over our ancestors, unless you mean superior in the number of cat memes, in which case you would be correct. We have to avoid falling victim to the idea, brilliantly articulated by British philosopher Owen Barfield, that, quote, intellectually, humanity languished for countless generations in the most childish errors on all sorts of crucial subjects until it was redeemed by some simple scientific dictum of the last century. This idea is hogwash, so unless you want to wash some hogs, knock it off. The story of Abraham and his family actually begins in Genesis 11. Heads up, you'll notice he's called Abram and his wife Sarah is called Sarai. This is because later on in the story, God changes their names. We'll get into that when we get there. But this is the introduction to Abraham, Genesis 11, chapter 26. After Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. The story doesn't tell us where Abraham was born exactly, but it does say that his younger brother Haran was born in Ur, which is just north of Cleveland. I'm kidding. But I do want to share some fun maps and facts with you, which leads us to the part of the book I like to call Sumer, Sumer, Sumer time, time to relax and unwind. Sumer, where the story says Abraham is from, is located in a region that's sometimes called the Fertile Crescent a lush, fertile area framed by two rivers, the Tigris and Euphrates. This area is also called Mesopotamia and is considered the birthplace of civilization because this is where humans develop crop cultivation, allowing them to stop being hunter-gatherers and stay rooted in one place. There aren't a lot of natural boundaries in this area, and so from about 3000 BC to 400 BC, tribal and regional family groups combine forces while sharing resources, intermarrying, and developing into a brand new form of government empires. Sumeria's largest city was Uruk. Uruk is thought to be the first city with more than 50,000 people, and archaeologists think it might have been the biggest city in the world in Abraham's day. One more thing to note. Because of the rivers in this region, there was plenty of mud. 
The ancient people discovered that mud and clay could be crafted into rectangular forms and then dried in the sun, or better, baked in ovens, bricks. Later, seeping pools of asphalt called tar pits were added to the bricks as a resin, which made the bricks waterproof and very, very durable. This is critical because it allowed for safe, uniform construction instead of using irregular stones and mud. Now, now that we understand a bit more about the time that Abraham was from, let's learn more about the place he was from. Abraham, the Bible tells us, lived in Ur. Genesis eleven thirty one. 31. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. You can tell a lot about a city and its people by its architecture. For example, if future archaeologists were to look at the ruins of the Bay Area, they'd find a giant skyscraper devoted to business, the Salesforce Tower, a gleaming ringed spaceship-looking circle, the Apple Campus, and a pyramid building, the Transamerica Tower. These are three of the Bay Area's most iconic buildings, and they're all related to business and tech because the Bay Area is all about business and tech. The buildings reveal the values of this area, what's important to our society and to the people living there. It's no different, really, in ancient Mesopotamia. Archaeologists tell us that Sumerian cities all had something in common, perfectly designed, large, rectangular buildings called ziggurats. Ziggurats were temples with steps leading upward, rising above everything else in the city to show their significance. Archaeologists have discovered nearly 30 ziggurats in the general region of ancient Samaria. And wouldn't you know it, the best preserved ziggurat from all of ancient Sumeria was in Ur, where Abraham was from. It was called the Great Ziggurat of Ur, and it contained 720,000 baked bricks. It was constructed for Ur's patron deity, the moon goddess Nana. The towering architecture of the ziggurat stressed the significance of the temple to the surrounding community. It was the center of life, and the god it represented was central to the lives of the people. You see, ziggurats might look like pyramids, but there's nothing inside them. No tomb, no treasures or pathways. They're just mounds of dirt and rubble supported and framed with mud bricks. Their primary function was to support a ramp or a staircase, a stairway to heaven. Cue Led Zeppelin. Sometimes at the top of the ziggurat, there would be a bed or a table for the god. The goal was to coax the deity to come down to earth from another realm and to bring with them divine blessings. The reasoning was simple. If we provide for the gods, they'll provide for us. It was a symbiotic relationship, a relationship of mutual dependence. Or maybe if we can build something high enough, we can get up to the gods. Ziggurat Theology. The ziggurats give us some insight into the religious and theological frameworks of these ancient Sumerians. But there's other evidence to help us understand their mindsets as well. For example, the oldest surviving work of literature is also from this time, the ancient Mesopotamian story or poem called the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is about a man searching for the secret to life and immortality by going on an epic quest to find the gods. Spoiler alert, he fails. But hey, he gets a cool story named after him. These types of stories circulated and continued in various forms, like the ancient Greek story of Hercules, who was Zeus's son, 
but he was not welcome on Olympus. He had to accomplish 12 impossible tasks, Herculean tasks, you might say, in order to prove he was worthy to sit at the table with the gods. I know, I'm several thousand years removed from the Sumerians, but if I'm honest, for a long time in my life, this is how I viewed religion. You have to work to get to God. Even the way people I knew talked about religion, it was always presented as a, quote, spiritual journey. I'm just trying to find God, they'd say. I imagine trying to find God would involve a long, arduous trek where you had to go climb a steep mountain. And if you were lucky, you got to the top and there was God, who had his eyes closed in quiet meditation, stroking his long white beard while peach blossoms floated around him. Even Christians, when they talked about God, made it sound like this. They would say things like, there was a great chasm that opened up between people and God, and Jesus' death is a bridge that allows us to get back to God. Jesus was always presented like a giant rope bridge over the Grand Canyon of death. God might have built the bridge, but you were still the one who had to make the trek over to the other side. You were the one who had to get over to God's side. This is what God was like, I figured. If you tried really hard, and if you're really lucky, you can be one of those people who has a religious experience, whatever that means. This is ziggurat theology. Try harder. Climb to God. Do your part. I say all this because the religious and cultural background is important in the story of Abraham. These ideas about God were what Abraham and his family were steeped in for a long time. And your environment affects you. It's easy to get caught up in all of it, especially if it's the dominant message of your entire city. So, with that in mind, let's jump back into the story. Raiders of the Lost Ark One of the very first things that we discover from the text about Abraham is that his family's lineage can be directly traced back to Shem. Now, this name might not mean much, but the author is putting this in as a hyperlink back to the story of Noah, of Noah and the Ark. It's like someone saying, now Luke was from the line of Anakin. It brings the earlier story to bear on the present story. So in Genesis 11.10, this is what it says. This is the account of Shem's family line. Most people know Noah from the story about the flood and the ark that he built for his family and the animals. But Noah's importance is actually much deeper than that. The story of Noah doesn't begin or end with a flood. Noah's story begins with nearly unmitigated violence erupting on the face of the earth, as if the showrunner of The Walking Dead was writing the script for humanity. And this leads us to one of the most tragic verses in the entire Bible. Genesis 6, chapter 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. Man, listen to those words. Every inclination of the human heart was only evil all the time. Dear heaven, this is humanity at its lowest point, but how did it get so bad? Well, to put it mildly, the previous couple of chapters of the story have not gone particularly well for humanity. 
or for God. The name of the first book of the Bible, Genesis, simply means beginnings. And in the beginning, we're told not only that God created everything, but why God created everything. In the ancient world, people simply did not ask the question, hey, where did everything come from? The answer to that question would have been obvious. Duh, the gods made it. The bigger question was why? Why did the gods make it? Biblical scholar John Walton says that this story in the beginning of the Bible was meant to answer not only where everything came from, but also how was everything designed to work? What are the functions and how do we humans fit in so that we might know our functional place in the cosmos? This is arguably a much bigger and much more important question than where did everything come from? And the story is pretty fascinating. The story shows men and women who are made in God's image. Theologians sometimes call this the imago dei, which is Latin for the image of God, because smart people love using Latin phrases, even though perfectly good English translations of those exact phrases exist. The image of God is fascinating because it tells us something about ourselves. Some theologians say it reminds us of our essence. The Bible says that in the entire created realm, only humans have the imago dei, not animals. Examples of the imago dei which humans have that the animals don't are things like the capacity to reason, the fact that we can sense and be in a relationship with God, that we have morality and can choose to do good, and that we're not afraid of the vacuum cleaner. It's also a reminder that we're from dust, and therefore God is the source of our very breath and life. Genesis 1.27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. But Imago Dei is more than our essence. The Imago Dei also involves our purpose, what we're here for. The word image of God in Hebrew is selim. A selim in the ancient world was a big deal, and broadly defined, it was a localized, visible, corporal representation of a divine being. Think uh, a giant statue or a totem pole or an idol. Sometimes in the ancient Near East, powerful kings put up statues called selim of themselves. They did this to remind everyone who was in charge. These selim or statues were a representation of a king and their rule and their empire. And if you saw a selim of a particular god or goddess, you knew that deity was in charge of that area. Now, here's the shocking thing. Ancient gods and kings had selim made out of wood or stone, but God had something better, selim that could walk around and reproduce. Walking, talking, statues. That's us. God's selim are humans, which means humans are to embody and express the essence of God, particularly in our functions. So what functions? The word rule the Hebrew word rada, which is repeated in Genesis 1.28, is sometimes translated as have dominion and means to exercise authority over. It's a kingly, ruling word. We are to act like ambassadors for the king, and in another sense, we're given delegated authority to co-rule with God, representing him, his values, his ways, and his character through the earth. But wait, there's more. Humans are also given the command to subdue the earth. And that word in Hebrew, kabash, is a violent word, a word that implies war, conquest, or battle. The implication here is that this God, the creator God, is engaged in an active battle. 
At first, God is overcoming the formless and emptiness of the deep by forming and filling creation. That phrase, formless and empty, is the Hebrew phrase tohu wa bohu, and it brings with it a connotation of uncultivated and uninhabited. God is cultivating Eden and filling it with inhabitants, and he is inviting his selim to continue his work and do likewise. As Genesis continues, though, it's also clear that God is at war against evil and will bring good into this world through his selim. He will make things on earth as they are in heaven. So in a sense, this is a cosmic battle between good and evil. This is some Lord of the Rings stuff. Then things go sideways. Humanity decides to trust their own perceptions rather than trust what God has told them. In essence, seizing moral autonomy and breaking their relationship with God. Humans hide in fear. Men and women can't face each other without shame and blame. And even the ground under mankind's feet doesn't respond as it should. And in case you ever wonder if sin is really that corrupting, remember that on page three of the Bible, humans disobey, distrust, and disregard God and eat from a tree. And one page later, Cain kills his own brother in cold blood. But as bad as things are, the story is still marked by repeated signal fires of God's incredible grace. For every human misstep, there's a counterbalance of grace. Adam and Eve are naked and ashamed, so God gives them clothes. The serpent lies and deceives humanity, but God gives a promise that the snake's head will be crushed. Cain kills his brother, but God supernaturally protects him in the wild and waste of civilization. Yes, things have gone horribly wrong, but God's creation project is still wobbling along with God's sustaining help. Until it isn't. And that's the tragedy of the story of Noah. We learn something vital. As people drift further and further away from this sacred partnership with God, their imago dei is marred. It's as though they turn subhuman into animals. God created order and life and sustained it, but as humans get further away from him, disorder and death reign. As the world descends into madness and violence, God grieves and decides to start over, cleansing the earth of the vile scourge of humanity, the cosmic equivalent of unplugging the earth and then turning it back on. But there is one bright spot. Selim's Lot. The story tells us that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, that's in Genesis 6-8, and that Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and that he walked faithfully with God, that's Genesis 6-9. This is great news. Noah is a faithful Selim, and the story leaves us hopeful that he can remain that way, an honest-to-goodness partner with God and ruling with God the way God intended. God asked Noah to build a giant boat, and Noah because he is righteous and walks faithfully with God and apparently lives close to a Home Depot, builds a giant floating structure. Noah obeys God by building an ark. The flood comes, and Noah and his family are spared, humanity's last great hope to continue their role as faithful Selim. After the flood, Noah starts off well. Noah makes an altar to God, and God makes a promise to Noah. Genesis 9, chapter 8. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you 
And with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And so we're hopeful. Maybe Noah and his family can continue to be what Adam and Eve could not. Selim, images of God, co-regents with God. Maybe sin is gone. Maybe Noah will continue to walk with God perfectly and get it right. But like the absolutely horrifying 1979 film Alien, it turns out that getting into a ship to try to get away from evil didn't work because evil was hiding on the ship the whole time inside one of the inhabitants. Noah turns to wine and drunkenness, and sin and evil are back in control, and then things slide from good to even worse. The Selim, these walking, talking images of God, stop acting like the king they're supposed to represent and reflect. They forget God. They walk away from him. And even worse, a few generations later, the people stage a formal coup against God. This is not just bad, it's insurrection. And like the post-Return of the Jedi Star Wars sequels, things go from very bad to absolutely terrible. The Tower of Babel. In some ways, Genesis chapter 11 is the height of human rebellion. Here's what the text says. Genesis 11, chapter 1. This is what it says. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Now, here are some details we miss because we're not ancient readers. First of all, archaeologists tell us that the plain of Shinar is in southern Mesopotamia, in Sumer. And what are ancient Sumerian structures made with bricks designed to go to heaven called again? That's right, ziggurats. So humanity comes together and builds the Tower of Babel, a ziggurat, a staircase to heaven. They use their new brick technology to build their own way to heaven, perhaps attempting to get to the tree of life and circumventing God in the process thereby also decisively rejecting bearing his name as image bearers, this is a total divorce. It's an insurgency, a riot to storm heaven. And God responds. First, he confuses their languages and stops them from achieving their plans. Then God scatters them, which was the original intended goal, but now humans are more divided and confused. This is very bad. And then the story gets even worse. In the next few verses, we find out that Noah's direct descendants, Abraham's family, had settled in the land of the Chaldeans in the cities of Ur and Haran, which were two major centers of lunar worship. Because you and I are modern Westerners, foreigners to this land, language, and time period, we don't pick up on the subtlety going on here. The commentators and ancient historians tell us that Abraham's father, Terah's name, was the same phonetically as the moon god that was worshipped in that region. And Sarai's name, that's Abraham's wife, is the female partner of the moon god Sin. And Milcah's name is the name of Sin's daughter, who's also a moon god. Now, maybe you're thinking, why is that a big deal? 
The names of Terah and Milcah and Sarai are so significant because it's a hyperlink. These names mean that Noah's descendants, which would have had knowledge of God, were not acting as faithful Selim and instead have fallen into lunar worship of lunar gods. Abraham's ancestors had been rescued by Yahweh, the creator God, from the flood, but this family is not worshiping that God. They're worshiping other gods. This would be like being a huge Chicago Bears fan, moving to Green Bay, and then naming your kids Favre and Rogers. Just unthinkable. This is not what God was hoping for with humanity, with his Selim. They were supposed to be in a loving, faithful relationship with God and be fruitful and multiply. And the details of the story are even more heart-wrenching. In Genesis 11.30, we learn that Sarah cannot have children. How can Abraham and Sarah be faithful Selim if they can't have children to fill the earth? This is all bad news. In his Old Testament commentary, Walter Brueggemann puts it like this, quote, The barrenness of Sarah is an effective metaphor for hopelessness. This text tells us there's no foreseeable future. There's no human power to invent a future. The human race and human history have just hit a dead end. And we're left wondering, where's the counterbalance? Up to this point, God's always responded to human messes with grace. Where's the grace? There is none. None that we can see and none in sight. And we're left wondering, has the bond between God and mankind been cut? Has God run out of patience? Was that the final straw? And this is where things would have ended. Except that God gets involved. And when God gets involved, dead ends suddenly aren't so dead. Are you there, Abraham? It's me, God. It's in this setting, with this backdrop, with this backstory, that we encounter one of the most exceptional moments in the entire biblical story. This moment is typically referred to as the call of Abraham. And seriously, I think if you made a list of the 10 most important passages, the most important moments in the entire Bible, this one in Genesis 12 might make the cut. It's that critical and it's that beautiful. Let me read it. Genesis 12, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Just as God called forth the entire created world with just his words, creating order from chaos and bringing life from the wild and waste, he's doing it again, only this time in the plain, localized life of a man named Abraham. And God's promises are staggering. They start with the specific, the particular. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. Abraham will get his lineage. He'll become a great patriarch. He'll have a family. And that family will become powerful. Things will go well for him. He will get divine blessings. But then this line. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The promises shift. They're no longer individual, but universal. This promise goes all the way back to Genesis 1. This is king language. The idea that humanity could somehow walk with God 
and be a co-ruler and make things on earth as they are in heaven. And by co-ruler, just so you know, I don't mean that we can become like God or become gods. God's God, we're not. We must maintain our proper place as God's royal subjects. But the language in the Bible is all there. Like Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, saying that we reign with Christ. Or John saying that we sit with Christ on his throne in Revelation 3.21. Again, we're not setting up our own kingdoms, but we serve and reign with God in his. I know. I know. We're all modern American people, and we hate the idea of kings. The worst character in Hamilton is the sniveling King George, after all. But for most people at most points in history, their lives were tied to the king. If you had a good king, a fair king, an honest king, a compassionate king, a strong king, then your life would go well. And if you had an evil or a corrupt king, then your life could be terrible. Abraham is told that he can be a Selim, to work with God to bless the entire world. And now, Abraham and God are linked. God has attached himself to one particular human family, and now Abraham is invited to partner with God to bring divine blessing to the entire world, to every nation, every tribe, every people and language. The creator of life is going to bring his glory to earth somehow, through Abraham. This is not about Abraham alone. He was not chosen by God for his own benefit, but for the benefit of the entire world. And I find it fascinating that by meeting a deep need of Abraham's, the desire for a child, for biological fertility, that God is doing something much greater. Abraham will have a spiritual fertility that will mean spiritual fatherhood extending across the entire world. I love the way Bruce Feiler captures this moment in his book, Abraham. He says, quote, This is the ultimate power of the call. It's a summons to the world to devote itself to God. God once again sends out an olive branch to humanity. If you put your entire life in my hands, you will be rewarded. And Abraham's response is astonishing. The text is glaringly simple. Genesis 12, 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. This single verse is short, it's simple, but it contains a universe of meaning. Abraham just goes. His father had taken them from the land of Ur, modern-day southern Iraq, to Haran, which is modern Turkey. Abraham's father originally set out for Canaan, but chose to stay along the river in the fertile, lush region. Abraham does not do this. He must now cross a desert, an arid and dry region. So, Abraham goes down to Shechem in Canaan, which is in modern-day Israel, which is more than 400 miles away. Is this to say that Abraham exhibited trust in God that his father lacked? Regardless, Abraham walks a long way, but now, unlike before, he walks with God, just as it was intended in the garden. And when Abraham gets to Canaan, he does something extraordinary. Genesis 12, chapter 6. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now again, we have to pause for a moment to drink all this in. And I want to concentrate on that last line about the altar. In the ancient world, when you went into a foreign land, You built an altar to the god or the gods of that locality. Even today, 
certain places are associated with certain local gods. For example, Mount Everest's Tibetan name is Chomolungma, which means mother goddess of the world. Its Nepali name is Sagarmatha, which is translated to goddess of the sky. If you were to hike Mount Everest, you might have to go to a temple and offer a simple sacrifice at a monastery to the goddess of Everest. You might offer simple flower cakes or a drink like Coca-Cola, while monks burn juniper leaves to offer protection for you and your gear. It would be incredibly unwise to attempt to summit this mountain without completing the puja, or blessing ceremony. The implication is that if you do not complete this ceremony, the goddess will kill you. And if you doubt that, they'd show you the body strewn at the top of Everest to prove it. You don't go around insulting local gods. This was the mindset of the ancient world. When Abraham enters into Canaan, whose local god was Baal, the expectation was that he would set up an altar and make an offering to this local god, just like travelers or new settlers to Abraham's old home of Ur in the land of the Chaldeans would make an offering to the lunar god Sin or Milcah. But Abraham does not do this. Incredibly, in the land of Baal, Abraham builds an altar to a different god. In the land of Baal, this is no small thing. When you went to a foreign land, you built altars to their local gods. And if you didn't, well, that's incredibly offensive. And that's the kind of thing that might just get you killed. So why? Why? Why would Abraham do this? I think it's because of the ziggurats. Reversing the ziggurat. Just like you and I, Abraham lived in a world that is frightening and unpredictable and outside the control of mere mortals. Things happened in his world that Abraham had no control over, just like things happen to us. Sometimes, because we live in a world with more social services and social safety nets, it feels like we're more in control. But if you listen to the wisdom whispered down through the ages, you'll hear the sages tell us that we all have far less control than we think. This was true for Abraham. If the summer rains flooded the plains, not only would the crops in the local economy be ruined, but your family might die. In 2020, it's a tiny, novel virus that's destroying the economy and killing people. You and I have to admit, sometimes the world is just harsh. And when you live in the middle of an unpredictable world, like we all do, you start to hedge your bets. Try to make it out alive. Do whatever it takes. The stories told to the people in ancient Mesopotamia was that help was probably not coming because God or the gods were very far away. Very far away. Maybe they'll come down. Maybe they won't. There's no guarantee. Perhaps if you leave something valuable enough, you'll catch the gods' attention. But there's no telling what type of sacrifice might work. We're all just guessing here. If you hike all the way up the ziggurat, maybe you'll find God. More than likely, you'll find nothing because there's no guarantee that help is coming. More than likely, no one is coming for you. Is this message so different than what we're told in our modern era? And yet, in this one simple moment of Genesis 12, we see the reversal of ziggurat theology. This God is different. This is Emmanuel theology. This God isn't angry, but is uh, forgiving? Abraham had not done anything to deserve God's particular visitation to him. Actually, it was the opposite. This is not something Abraham earned through righteous living. This is not about Abraham's merit. 
Abraham did not do everything right. He was not a paragon of religious devotion to God. His family was worshiping other gods. So why would God do all this? It seems so extravagant. No, that's not the right word. It seems almost foolish. After all, we expect God to come and have a few choice words to say to Abraham. And if God had rejected Abraham saying, you're not a suitable partner for me to work with, we wouldn't have blamed him. We expect God to point out all the ways that Abraham has blown it and made a royal mess of his life. But he didn't. He doesn't. That's not what this story says. This God comes not to take, but to give. Abraham must have been awestruck. Unlike every other story of every other ancient Mesopotamian deity, this God is here not to take something from Abraham or demand a lavish offering or unleash thunderbolts of fury, but to give something. God comes with a promise, a promise to bless Abraham, to overlook the foolishness of his life, to look and see something deeper and invite him to walk with him to give him a son, a family, a legacy, to restore Abraham's family place as a selim of God, just like his ancestor Noah, and then to extend this blessing to all of humanity through Abraham's family. This God doesn't wait for the perfect ziggurat. He doesn't wait for humans to build a ziggurat. He comes down from heaven and he himself comes to earth. He moves first. No ziggurat needed. This God comes and finds us. If you think about it, Abraham was in worse shape than he realized. He was in a darker, more helpless spot than perhaps he even knew. Or perhaps he did know deep down. I don't know. But there is one person who knew. God knew. God knew how lost Abraham was. He knew how lost all of humanity was. And instead of letting chaos and destruction continue, he attaches himself to one particular family out of all the families of the earth. This God is going to reestablish his presence on earth through Abraham and his family. Heaven came down to earth. God walking with his people, dwelling with his people, Emmanuel, like he always wanted to, like he did in the garden with Adam and Eve. That's what his original plan was. I know a little something about this. 305 West 29th Street. In the fall of 1997, during my senior year of college, I was doing a semester-long internship in New York City. To say that it was not a great time in my life is an understatement. I was training to be a journalist, and at a time when the newspaper industry was going extinct. For you young people, newspapers were these things, these publications that were like printed on folded, unstapled sheets of paper. Anyway. I tried to pivot, thinking maybe interning at Columbia TriStar Pictures would help. It didn't. I was stuck doing thankless grunt work anonymously with little prospect of standing out. If college was supposed to help me find a career, I felt no further along than I had the first day I stepped on campus. It didn't help to think about the fact that in a few months I would graduate and the beloved community of roommates and friends I had forged over the past four years would evaporate nearly instantaneously. And at the same time, I was also grieving. Earlier in the year, both my grandparents had passed away. God had dealt me a pair of aces when it came to grandparents. They were 
towering figures of unconditional love in my life, and now they were both gone. This opened up all sorts of existential questions. I was not in a good place. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you have been there too. As I walked home from work from the Sony building through the teeming masses of people, I realized that even in the most densely populated city in the nation, it's possible to feel very much alone. And that night, on the third floor of 305 West 29th Street in Manhattan, New York, in the room I rented, which was six feet wide and I could touch both walls, and 12 feet long and 12 feet high, I came to a desperate conclusion. I was lost. I didn't know which direction to turn, how to live life. I was racked by grief I didn't know how to process. My thoughts were dominated by fear about my future. My best friend from high school, Eric, still lived back in our hometown in Ohio. He was the only Christian friend I had. And like Diana before him, when Eric talked about God, I swear to you, it was like he was talking about somebody he actually knew. And like Diana, Eric would share with me all the ways God was helping him. Eric kept insisting over and over and over again that God wasn't far away. I didn't know what he meant. God felt a million miles away to me. He might as well have not even existed. But that night, desperate and scared, I admitted it. I admitted I couldn't do it, that I was hopelessly lost, that there were things in my life I could not fix, including even things inside me, like my anxiety and my insecurities, which seemed to control me. I had made a mess of things. I knew that full well. So I admitted out loud to anyone who could hear, to God if he was even listening, that I simply could not do this on my own. And I uttered a prayer, I guess. God, if you're there, and I don't know if you are, but if you are, would you help me? And there in that tiny, cramped 6 by 12 apartment on the third floor of an apartment building in Manhattan, God found me. I was lost, but now was found. But that's even a bit of a misnomer, friends, because in fact, God had been there the entire time, present and active in my life in ways I didn't even have the eyes to see, present since the very beginning. And some people hearing this know exactly what I'm talking about. You had a moment, too, when God found you. Do you remember that moment? One of my favorite poets and songwriters is a woman named Nicole Nordeman who penned a song describing exactly this. It will find you at the bottom of a bottle. It will find you at the needle's end. It will find you when you beg and steal and borrow. It will follow you into a stranger's bed. It'll find you when they serve you with the papers. It'll find you when the locks have changed again. It'll find you when you've called in all your favors. It will meet you at the bridge's highest ledge. So hold on. Love will find you. Hold on. He's right behind you now. Just turn around and love will find you. This is the truth. It's what I discovered in that small room in the middle of New York City, that God finds us. We don't have to traverse the mountains or cross creaky rope bridges or climb exhausted to the top of a tower of steps to get to heaven. God finds us. And it's what Abraham discovered too.
God comes to us. I think that's why Abraham made that altar. I think that's why he pledged his loyalty to this God, because what other God does this? What other God leaves heaven to come to earth for us? What other God reverses the ziggurat? We don't have to build something to climb up to God or coax the gods to come down. This God comes to us for us. So why did Abraham build an altar to this God? Because what other God in the whole wide world offers anything even close to this? In some ways, I think this might have been an easy decision for Abraham. This is like peak LeBron James going to the worst team in the NBA and saying, I want to play for your franchise. You won't even have to pay me a salary. I will play for free. I will bring legions of fans and make all your players better and will win multiple titles. And all you have to do is sign this contract and let me be your franchise player. What general manager wouldn't sign up for that? It's almost too good to be true. Almost. By building an altar, Abraham is saying, I know that I am in a foreign land and I know they worship other deities. I know that other people around me might worship those other gods, but not me. You are my God. I choose you. And this story shows us something about what it means to love God. In the Hebrew, there's a special word for this love, chesed. This is an important word in the Old Testament, showing up more than 248 times with an incredibly elastic range of meaning. When used to talk about God acting toward humanity, the word chesed is sometimes translated as loving kindness or covenant faithfulness. Often, it's used as an attribute of God. Generally, the word means zeal towards someone else. And so when it's used about humans toward God, it usually means reverent piety or devotion toward God. And this is what Abraham is showing by making this altar. He's showing us that loving God means being faithfully committed to him. This is what loving God means. This Hebrew word chesed has given me better language around the mushy English word love, especially regarding what it means to love God. It means you're loyal. It means you're committed. Abraham's altar is a symbol of his devotion. Abraham's loyalty and commitment. For Abraham, it was the only proper response emphasis on the word response. Because in essence, Abraham is reflecting back to God something that God has already showed to him. Love. Chesed. And the love that this God has shown Abraham is not weak. It's not emotional or sappy or sentimental love. No. This God has shown a deep, robust, forgiving, transformative, committed, devoted love. A God who comes down to find us? A God who comes not to take from humanity, but to give? And not just give a little, but give to overflowing? Now that is something else. And that can change everything. And so the key lesson we learn here is Abraham shows us in this moment that loving God means being loyal and committed to him, even if that means making an altar to God in the land of Baal, even if it costs you.